0: And hello, and welcome to a special episode of Red Star Radio today, as part of our new series whereby we're looking to uh, interview somebody from who's going to speak about, with some knowledge from a uh, socialist or communist perspective, each of the uh, of the actually existing socialist governments that are out there in the world today. Our aim of doing this is to puncture through. The uh, miasma of lies and propaganda that gets put out about socialist governments that has always been put out about the official enemies of the uh, the capitalist uh, states in which we live. And so today at the beginning of our series, I'm very pleased to say we've got um, Dermot Hudson from the uh, Korean Friendship Association, and he's going to be talking with me today about uh, the latest uh, lunatic uh, conspiracy theory that the uh, capitalist press have been running with about the leadership of the DPRK, and more broadly about the history uh, of the DPRK, socialism there, the meaning of the douche idea, and bringing it right up to date with a look at uh, Donald Trump's uh, so-called peace proposals. So we'll get straight into this. Uh, Dermot, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and talk a little bit about KFA and what, what what you uh, guys aim to achieve and um, a general introduction to your your work and your organization.
1: Right, uh, good morning, uh, comrades. I'm Dermot Hudson, uh, chairman of the UK Korean Friendship Association, which is part of the worldwide Korean Friendship Association, uh, which has got more than 17,000 members worldwide. Uh, It was founded in November, 2000 by Alejandro Caldebenos uh, in Spain and it's going to be celebrating its uh, 20th year of existence uh, this uh, November. I'm also chairman of the British group for the study of the Duche idea. I have visited the DPRK 18 times and I've been involved in solidarity, work with the DPRK really since the uh, 1980s. With KFA our aim is very simple, uh, to defend the DPRK. It's as simple as that. We're here to defend uh, the DPRK from the false propaganda of the imperialists and to present the reality of the DPRK uh, to the
0: uh, people. OK, excellent. And this is exactly why uh, uh, we're interviewing yourself today. And it's exactly why I uh, want to do as ma- much work like this on the channel as possible, because we're all brought up here in the uh, in the capitalist world with a series of ideas about every um, socialist nation that are, upon more in-depth research, almost entirely wrong um when i started reading about the true history of the soviet union for instance i found that almost everything we were told was either wrong or completely distorted or 99% wrong and the 1% that was true was wildly exaggerated so um dermot i'd like to get st- straight into uh the the, uh, the the latest piece of what is obviously a propaganda job which is um the story the stories that were emanating from all the major news sources in uh, the capitalist states in Britain and the United States and others about, uh, oh, is Kim Jong-un dead? Is, um, what's happening? Is his sister going to be put in charge? And just a series of quite transparently ludicrous stories that um, if I was in uh, the DPRK, I'd have probably laughed my, laughed my ass off about. But why is it that we keep getting these stories in the Western world Dermot I meanwhile what is your take about what um, what's the motivation for the, the the imperialist nations to keep putting out stories that are laughably untrue
1: well it's the vilification uh, of the DPRK and the demonization of the uh, leadership and the socialist system of the DPRK Uh uh, part of an anti-socialist offensive are uh, the imperialists' aim to bring down the DPRK as they see it as a thorn in their flesh, something to be uh, suffocated or, or destroyed at all costs. And part of this uh, campaign means that they uh, need to uh, mislead the public about the. Uh, truth of the reality of korean socialism and in the past uh, there was a very big anti-communist uh, propaganda industry uh that was focused on on the soviet union and of course you know the soviet union went in 1991 uh so yeah, you know, the dprk uh, became uh, one of the prime targets of this anti-communist propaganda industry. And it's the lies are now being produced on an industrial scale. Uh, sometimes uh, I think they're actually also uh, tinged with racism. You know, there's an element of uh, uh, race in some of the uh, anti-DPRK propaganda. Uh, you know, it's it's all down to the... the uh, old uh, idea of the imperialists that anyone who stands up against them is, is mad. You know, they coined the phrase years ago, a mad dog, uh, meaning any sort of anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist leader who, who challenged uh, them. And uh, this, this very much an element of this uh, uh, with their demonization of the DPRK. The, Stories uh, a few weeks ago originated from a notorious website called the Daily NK, which uh, uh, is a CIA funded entity and is, uh, linked uh, to the wackier sections of the South Korean National Intelligence Service and the South Korean uh, far right. and it was very apparent to anyone with a good knowledge of the dprk that these stories were false uh they had a very showed a very uh poor understanding of dprk geography and as usual it was an unnamed source it, everything is always an unnamed source or yeah. sources and as you saw with the story, they actually changed it uh, several times uh, over, you know. First it was a stroke, then it was a heart attack. Uh, uh, then there was even one story, you know, a missile had had blown up. Uh, you know, there was all, all kinds of uh, different versions of uh, what was supposed to have happened and what was supposed to be happening. But uh, getting back to the main uh Main point, uh, you know, the DPRK is a socialist country uh, which uh, maintains, I think, authentic socialism and which is, again, in my opinion, one of the most independent countries in the world is uh, singled out for this kind of vilification by the imperialists because they just hate the system so much.
0: Yeah, and this is the uh, the 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 commonality of what you've described there, and a lot of the history of anti communist propaganda, is that you'll notice the prominent role that's played in all of it by forces from these uh, all countries that are from uh, that are that are are, uh, ruled over by um, socialist systems. That the imperialists will find the most extreme right wing. Lunatic fringe they can possibly lay their hands on and elevate them to a position of being uh, the heroes of democracy, the defenders of freedom, be it the uh, the open Nazis in Ukraine uh, now being apparently the defenders of uh, Western democracy or the um, the oligarchies in uh, Central and southern America uh, which uh, they aim to elevate back into power in Venezuela so it's no surprise that they're aligned with similar people in korea um so uh, as a follow-up to that um, just as a sort of bit a bit of an expansion these so-called um north korean defectors as they're always described in the media i mean i've read a little bit about them it seems like a lot of them are essentially con artists and um crooks who uh, are essentially making a lot of money running around echoing the CIA's talking points and being like a more authentic face for the propaganda. Uh, would that be a fair summary, what I've just said there?
1: Well, uh, basically, uh, there is uh, what what you call celebratory defectors, a mm-hmm. uh, number of uh, which, uh, you know, are basically part of the anti-DPRK propaganda machine. And come out with any old rubbish that they are told to. Yeah. These, these people are not free agents. They they are under the control of the South Korean National Intelligence Service or CIA or both. And they, they will basically uh, come out with what, what they're scripted uh, to say. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Uh, Not all defectors are like that. I say basically the media, Western media, mainstream media is giving prominence to certain very noisy ones. Mm. Uh, Some one or two defectors have actually demanded the right to go back to the DPRK. Uh, And a lot of uh, uh, defectors also say they're not accepted by south korean society uh and can't get uh, you know can't get uh, decent jobs mm. uh, live under very bad conditions but you know for the sort of dishonest and venal uh ones you know there's there's opportunities to make piles of money uh by being uh you know ba- basic Basically, propaganda merchants, uh, you know, getting up, coming out with some of the most lurid stories about the uh, DPRK. Uh, you know, quite ludicrous stories like the uh, the young uh, woman uh, Yomi Park. I mean, she was saying things like you know, nonsense like uh, she she could see bodies floating uh, down the river, etc. Uh, you know. T- total nonsense and her story was blown apart many, many times. Uh, Similarly, you know, they don't talk about him now, but about, I think, uh, seven or eight years ago, uh, the character defector Shin was given a lot of uh, publicity and sort of uh, uh, toted around all over the place. Uh, And, uh, you know, he had a book uh, Ghost written by an American writer, Blaine Harden, uh, and late, later Shin admitted that uh, he'd lied mm. in the book, and uh, the DPRK ran ran an expose of his real background. And he, of course, yes, he was actually in in, in a DPRK prison, uh, and the reason was because he was he was convicted of rape. Mm. Uh, and I, I found it particularly disgusting that the US imperialists and the UN were parading this uh, character around. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, you no, know, how can they talk about women's rights when you know they're using a convicted rapist to to make propaganda against the DPRK? And I know some people would say, oh, you've only got the DPRK's word you know that he he did commit uh rape uh and my answer to that is then you know why not uh, send him for trial in a third country uh hmm. why doesn't the un investigate the 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 allegations a- against him but you know they're just silent on on it yes you know? it's
0: it's really disgusting hypocrisy yes well, also, given the number of politicians who were uh, are rabid anti communists who turn out to have been, shall we say a friend of Mr. Jeffrey Epstein, uh, I think uh, it's conclusively proved that these are things that they don 't care about in the slightest it's uh, anything that they will they can seize upon to uh, score a propaganda point as they see it against a socialist country they will use doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if it's one hundred percent untrue or it comes from a very unreliable source. They'll elevate it and elevate it until it reaches a crescendo level basically. Um, I wanted to turn now Dermot to to take take ourselves back into history uh, because it's impossible to understand any nation without understanding the historical events that's led to led to our current point. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the pre-revolutionary period in Korea, uh, particularly, period of the, the quite a long period of Japanese occupation and what that did to the Korean nation, the nature of that occupation and the beginning of resistance against it.
1: Right. Uh, so what what you say is uh, very, very correct, uh, that you need to look at the history of a country to to understand the present and indeed the uh, future. Uh, Korea was uh, uh, a feudal society. And uh, it lost independence in in the 1900s. And what you had was that uh, amongst the Korean uh, feudal ruling class, uh, you had factions, uh, each of which uh, uh, supported an outside power, Uh, you know they believed in trying to solve the the problems of the country in reliance on different big powers and at the time uh, you had quite a lot of competition uh, between different countries for control or influence over Korea. Uh, Japan was uh, eyeing up uh, Korea as a a colony but you you also had uh, Tsarist Russia and China, uh, not to mention the U.S., and even Britain and France. They they were all uh, trying to get in on the act, and within the Korean ruling class, uh, you had pro-Japanese faction, pro-Chinese, pro-Russian, and I think pro-American faction. Uh, Japan started to make moves towards uh, occupying Korea in, in the 1900s uh, particularly after the defeat of Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 Uh, and uh, you also had uh, a pact between the U.S. and Japan Uh, I think uh, the Kasura-Taft Pact or Treaty uh, whereby uh, the U.S. Agreed to let uh, Japan take over Korea. In return, the Japanese uh, would turn a blind eye to the US in the Philippines. Uh, There were a number of uh, unequal treaties uh, signed between uh, the uh, Korean feudal ruling class and Japan. Uh, They went in into korea in in about 1907 and then in 1910 uh korea was formally uh annexed by japan became a colony of japan uh, uh basic basically disappeared from the world map you know it was not shown as an independent country on mm-hmm. the world map uh for korean people it meant a most uh brutal uh, colonial war, uh, colonial rule by Japan. Uh, They tried to stamp out everything Korean. They plundered a huge amount of resources uh, from the Korean nation. Uh, They tried to suppress the Korean language. Uh, They brutally put down independence movements, uh, such as the March the 1st uprising in nineteen. Nineteen, that was uh, put down by the uh, Japanese. President Kim Il-sung actually uh, witnessed uh, this uh, at the age of uh, seven. He'd actually gone to the uh, uh, demonstration for Korea's independence that was uh, held in Pyongyang and actually uh, witnessed uh, it with his own eyes. Uh, Japan, Basically uh, exploited the uh, Korean people. Uh, they, they plundered a huge, am- uh, say, a huge amount of resources. Uh, they created some industries, but these were, you know, like mining. Uh, you know, basically to cart materials out of Korea to Japan, uh, like coal. I believe the uh, Japanese also took a lot of timber and uh, various uh, precious metals. The Americans were given the concessions uh, to the gold mines in Korea, which is is an interesting point. Uh, mm. say, well, Korea was basically a Japanese colony. The 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 uh, Yanks uh, got the gold mines.
0: That's an interesting point that never comes out, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, the rule of uh, Japan over Korea was particularly barbaric. Uh, They took uh, about, I think, a million Korean people to Japan as uh, slave laborers. Worse still, uh, 200,000 Korean women uh, were made into Sex slaves for the Japanese Imperial Army, and uh, there has never been a, a formal recognition of that fact or a proper apology uh, by Japan for that uh, very enormous uh, crime. Uh, all they did was to offer South Korea a a, a bit of uh, compensation, but uh, you know it. it obviously uh never has never settled uh, the the issue hmm. and uh uh because of the uh, brutal rule of japan you know he obviously got different in independence movements uh grew up uh unfortunately uh you know some some of these were say still influenced by the idea of trying to obtain independence with the help of outside forces uh, you know with some some people looking to the united states uh, and uh, some to china and even uh, even some people who thought you know if uh, they uh, uh Collected signatures on a petition uh, on a petition and uh, gave it to the Japanese that they would grant them independence, or you know, even trying to collect money, uh, you know, and the the idea that you know they could somehow, if they collected enough money, that you know they could buy uh, independence from Japan. Uh, similarly, you you had the, the communist movement start in Korea in the nineteen twenties. Hmm. Uh That too suffered from very chronic factionalism, and again, uh, an idea of trying to depend on outside uh, forces. Uh, And President Kim uh, Il-sung came onto the scene in the 1920s. Uh, He was actually the son of a great Korean patriot uh, Kim Hyong jik who had actually formed the korean national association uh an association of korean nationalists but at the same time uh, uh he was uh inspired and interested in the example of the october uh, socialist revolution uh you know the creation of the first workers and peasant state in the world yeah uh, so president kim il-sung uh he studied communist ideas and uh he resolved to form a movement for Korea's independence, but when he saw both communist and nationalist factions just fighting each other uh, uselessly, uh, he decided that this wasn't the this wasn't the right way to go about it. Uh, he formed the Down with Imperialism Union on October seventeenth, uh, nineteen twenty-six. And this was totally new uh, revolutionary organization. It was based on the rising generation, on uh, students, uh, school students, uh, young workers and peasants. Uh, And it was untainted with the uh, factionalism and uh, dependence on outside forces. Uh, And he also formed the, Young Communist League of Korea and the Anti-Imperialist Youth League mm. uh, he's, he was conducting the, his activities amongst the Korean community in uh, Manchuria because uh, Japanese colonial rule was so bad that many Koreans just fled the country and mm. went, to, went across the border into China so you had big Korean communities there and it was uh, in these communities where uh, President Kim Il-sung was carrying out his revolutionary activities Uh, and uh, in 1930 he made the speech the path of the uh, Korean revolution which uh, basically uh, had the Juche idea in it in sort of embryo form but you know the the main points you know were to rely on the masses and to achieve independence through their own efforts yes Uh, he formed the korean revolutionary army uh which carried out some uh uh, activities and then in april 1932 he founded the anti-japanese people's guerrilla army uh, which be, became the Korean People's Revolutionary Army uh, in 1934, uh, and that uh, fought many battles against Japanese imperialism, uh, including the historic Pachombo Battle. Uh, the events was that, you know, they actually advanced in, into Korea and uh, destroyed Japanese in, installations uh, uh in the town of Pachomba which is in in the far northern part of Korea uh so that was a very significant battle at the same time uh he formed a united front body uh the association for the restoration of the fatherland uh and uh also the Korean national liberation uh union which was you know based within the uh, Korean, the actual Korean territory, mm. uh, ra- rather than the the Korean uh, community uh, in China, and uh, they eventually, uh, together with with the Soviet uh, uh, forces, uh, liberated Korea from Japanese imperialist rule on the fifteenth of August.
0: 1945 yeah and am i correct in saying Dermot, that when there was <clears throat> when this liberation happened um the southern part of korea what's now south korea uh was was, was that uh, initially occupied by the british uh and the americans is that is that why the division stems from right uh well the the british weren't weren't
1: involved mm. uh Basically, uh, you know, you had some units of the uh, Korean People's Revolutionary Army were actually operating in the South. Yes. And I, I remember my first visit to the DPRK 28 years ago when we were in the Korean Revolution Museum and uh, the guide, you know, she, she was showing us a big map of Korea. Uh, where all the different revolutionary activities were pinpointed, and there was some like I think red stars in the south. Uh, so someone said, "Oh, um, you know, why, you know, why wasn't there a sort of uh, united Korea? You know, uh, you know, why, why did you only have people's democracy in, in the north?" Not the South as well And the, the guy Said uh, in Quite an emotive voice You know Because uh, of the US imperialists And she said Oh they did terrible things mm. uh, In South Korea And what What happened uh, Was uh, The The US I believe Were actually quite annoyed Because they They'd actually got Bogged down in fighting The Japanese In Iconoya mm. Uh and they they couldn't get their forces to Korea very quickly, and uh, you know basically uh, Kim Il Sung's Korean People's Revolutionary Army, uh, you know, together with the the Soviets, uh, you know, stormed into the northern part of Korea. You know, Japanese rule just collapsing. Uh, but it, you know the the US couldn't get its forces in into uh, Korea, and so you yeah, had a lot of um, sort of international uh, meetings uh, and uh, basically an American colonel uh, actually Dean Rusk, who became I think very prominent in us politics and bureaucracy later, uh, just took a ruler and a pencil uh, looked at a map of Korea saw the 38th parallel just drew a line with a pencil and said you know the U.S. will occupy all uh, all of the areas uh south of the 38th uh, parallel uh what happens was the U.S. armed forces didn't land in South Korea until the 8th of September
0: mm. that is
1: Three weeks after Korea had actually been liberated from Japan, and one of the first things they did was uh, you had people's committees which had been set up the length and breadth of Korea as instruments of popular rule. Yeah, uh, the they, one of the first actions of the uh, US uh, was to order their dissolution. Uh, to their dissolution and to ban them yeah uh and declared that south korea was under the rule of uh, the u.s uh military uh government uh and i, I remember it in a museum in the DPRK, saying seeing the proclamation and in, in english of uh uh you know u.s military administration in in south korea and you know basically say, saying that, you know, their word was law. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the Communist Party in South Korea was, was, ba- uh, was also banned. Uh, many patriots and communists uh, were, were thrown in, in jail. And uh, you had a three year period of uh, direct US military rule in South Korea you know, where you know, an Ameri- basically, an American general was was in charge. I believe uh, it was a general Hodges. Mm. Uh, you know, he was ba- You know, it's basically replacing the old uh, uh, Japanese uh, Governor General uh, with, with an, uh, an American Governor General. Uh, in nineteen forty eight, uh, they created a puppet. Uh, regime and um, the Singman Rhee are mm. uh, very much a discredited figure in Korean politics uh, he had been involved with the nationalist movement with the so-called uh, Korean provisional government uh, that had been set up by some bourgeois nationalists in, in the 20s but didn't have any real support in in Korea, and, you know, was based in Shanghai. Uh, But Syngman Rhee uh, had particularly notoriety because he'd he'd actually embezzled funds of the uh, Korean independence movement, and as I say, had not actually lived in Korea for a very, very long time. Hmm. lived uh, he'd actually lived in in the us and he he was actually brought back on an american plane in into uh south korea and putting into power as 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 a puppet and, Right. Yeah, you know, the us created a puppet state to camouflage their uh rule in south korea
0: yeah uh, it's typical of the um of the imperialists, that they they always seem to find some deeply compromised figure uh, who it will be beholden to them because they lack any popular support of their own. So, Singman Rhee stands alongside uh, plenty of other examples from that period and today of a uh, puppet regime set up with uh, fraudsters, embezzlers, crooks, and all kinds of uh, chances. Yeah, so... Uh, just to sort of summarise uh, what you said there, Dermot. So you've, you, what you've got at the end of World War Two, before the um, uh, the American imperialists start their occupation, you have uh, a, a successful war of liberation uh, led by Kim Il Sung and uh, with the communists in a prominent and leading role in a, in a united front with the uh, the genuine nationalist forces. And you've got a really uh, sprouting from that liberation, you've got a genuine popular movement across all of Korea, uh, looking to establish popular rule uh, through these uh, people's committees and through the setting up of a new government. And it's the intervention of the United States that crushes that in the south of the country and institutes a dictatorship. Have I summarized what you've said there fairly? Yes, that, that is very correct, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, so cause I wanted to just put it like that because that's literally the opposite of what we're told, isn't it? Um, that um, uh, the people of Korea wanted to uh, live in uh, some, sort of, uh, some sort of Disneyland um, that uh, would be provided by the mun- munificence of the, uh, of the Truman administration whereas in actual fact, they the Korean people had clearly made their choice, and they wanted uh, not not just rid of the Japanese; they wanted to build a new and better society. Yes. So, just to move on then, because the you've got what we've got now is a divided uh, Korean Peninsula, uh, divided by Dean Rusk. Would he, uh, didn't you say who was who would go on to be, I believe, Secretary of State later on. In the uh, one of the American administrations, so really, what um, most people in the West, our knowledge of uh, of Korea, really uh, sort of starts with the Korean War, and I want to talk about the real origins of that. So we've already got a quite a brutish U.S. military occupation in the south of Korea. So what is it that starts the war in actuality, Dermot?
1: Well, uh the US uh, want, uh didn't want to see uh a successful uh, socialist regime or people's democracy in the uh, north of Korea. They wanted to destroy it. Uh moreover, uh the Korean peninsula is a place of great uh, strategic and geopolitical importance. Mm. Uh, it uh borders on uh, Russia and China or you know in those days uh, you know the Soviet Union
2: yes.
1: uh, you had the People's Republic of China which was uh, founded in 1949 and uh, the US uh, so it is very important to uh, occupy the whole of Korea so they could have uh, troops on the borders, uh, directly on the borders of the Soviet Union and uh, of uh, the People's Republic of China. And, uh, you know, it uh, would serve as part of their so called con- uh, containment strategy. But in fact, uh, in those days, the strategy of the US imperialists was uh, very aggressive, uh, not just to what they called containment, uh, but uh, you know they had the so-called strategy of rollback, uh, of uh, you know destroying uh, socialist uh, countries uh, by uh, by force, uh, and uh, their their aim was um, not only to knock down the uh, DPRK, which had been founded in September 1948, but. Also to reverse the Chinese Revolution and mm. uh, even to conquer parts of the Soviet Union, and this 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 was quite real. And you know, as we we see in that period, there were a number of uh, different attempts at uh, rollback by the U.S. imperialists. I mean, the Korean War or Fatherland Liberation War, as it's called in the DPRK. Uh, was one of them uh you also had uh, I think sort of counter revolutionary incident in in East Germany in 1953 and Hungary uh 1956 but you know I'm not not going to talk uh about uh, other countries uh the uh, US basically had, uh incited the uh, Sigmanny uh, who had sort of very vain dreams of uh, ruling over the, the in you know all of Korea in its entirety mm. uh, as, as you said it was a very brutal fascist dictatorship one American writer actually said it's wrong to call uh, Syngman Rhee a fascist uh, you know he's his ideology comes from the era before fascism. Uh, you know, it was uh, Bourbon, I think was the term used. Uh, there was terrible repression of the, the left and communists in South Korea. Uh, you know, about 100,000 people killed uh, in in South Korea by, by the South Korean puppet regime and the US imperialists. You know, they put down... Uh, an uprising on Jeju Island uh, in in 1948. And I think they uh, killed about a quarter of a third of the population uh, there. And uh, the U.S. uh, uh, established a South Korean puppet army, but it was under their control. It was under a U.S. uh, military advisory uh, group in uh south korea and they started to plan to conquer the the hmm. K- to invade it and originally uh from what what i've seen the original plan was actually to start the war in 1949 right but, uh, that actually had to be put back due to uh, a number of uh, uh, factors, you know, one of them obviously that was that the, the Syngman regime was very unstable. Uh, and there, uh, there was a big military pact between South Korea and the US in, in January 1950, uh, and uh, they were supplying the South Korean forces with uh, a lot. Uh, a lot of weapons yeah uh the dprk was uh, committed to peaceful reunification uh uh, in even weeks before uh the war broke out they sent two emissaries into south korea with uh, proposals for peaceful reunification uh they they made uh you know Proposals uh, to merge the two uh, uh, parliamentary bodies of the North and the South, uh, for example, but the, these were obviously ignored uh, by South Korea. Yes. And, uh, in uh, the lead up to the outbreak of the war, uh, in fact, one week before the war started, John Foster dallas the notorious figure, yeah, very uh, very anti communist, and one of the people associated with the so called rollback strategy. He visited South Korea, uh, actually toured uh, frontline areas. You know, there's there's a picture of him. In, uh, uh, in, I think, think wearing a sort of cowboy hat, you know, with a map in front of him, and with. with you know, South Korean figures beside him. Mm. And this was just a week before uh, the war broke out. Uh, and I think think that's very significant. Uh, you know, Western history books will, you know, basically airbrush that fact out of it. Yeah. I think that is very strong evidence that the uh, US and South Korea started the, the war because uh he's you know it cannot uh, be a coincidence that he was there one week before the uh, war started and uh uh he made a number of uh uh cryptic speeches uh mm-hmm. to the south korean national assembly and uh to uh singman Reed said something like uh we hope you'll play your part in the great struggle for freedom can't you know don't have the exact words to hand, but that that was the gist of it. And uh, he returned, came back from South Korea and uh, went to uh, Tokyo uh, where he had a meeting with uh, different American uh, generals.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: And then on the 25th of June, Uh, The Korean War, or Fatherland Liberation War, started, and it uh, basically uh, the US uh, used the South Korean army uh, to provoke the war. They started an an offensive uh, uh, across the uh, thirty-eighth parallel and uh, managed to uh, sort of get. Uh, get about two or three kilometers in into the areas of the DPRK. Uh again, something that that uh you know the school textbooks will airbrush out. They also uh uh claim they'd captured Hadju uh city, which is a uh city in the southern part of the DPRK, uh and you know broadcast a captured it uh, so the, the you know the idea that they didn't attack uh, first is 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 cl- is clearly nonsense yeah uh the d dprk had always known that they they were going to a- attack uh in fact in, in the lead up to the war there'd been uh, many incursions by south korean forces in into the dprk with a, a number of people uh killed so the dprk were prepared and uh, you know launched a counter-offensive immediately and pushed them back mm. I, I i can tell you uh uh you know an interesting story just very quickly uh i sure when when i uh, first got got stuck got involved with uh Korea Solidarity and I was in the old Communist Party of Great Britain, uh so um so old uh, old member who was uh, who'd been a school teacher sort of piped up and he's he said uh you know, when when the Korean War broke out, uh, you know, he'd uh, actually been uh, taking a party from his school around uh, a newspaper office. Uh, yeah, in London, and the ticker tape, but uh, you know the I think telex or what, whatever it was. Yeah, uh, when they uh, started uh, actually read, you know, South Korea has attacked the North. Yeah, and that's what he saw, and he said, "But you know, an hour later, that had been changed to North Korea it has invaded South Korea." <laughs> that's, that's a very telling fact yeah uh, uh also uh, again it can be looked up a famous american journalist john gunther was actually in tokyo and uh and he was with a couple of american army officers and uh, one uh one of them was called away to the phone came back and he said oh south korea has uh, attacked the north Hmm. And sort of Gumpher said, "Oh, he must have made a mistake, must have been confused or or something, but that was that's what was actually said
0: yes, and it's always the case that um whenever a counter revolutionary force tries to attack a, a a revolutionary country a socialist country, it always has to be the it, they always have to be the victim uh they always have to play the victim. Yeah. Uh, be it um, right up to today, when <clears throat> whenever uh, the Americans try something in Venezuela, for instance, it's always that they're responding to the horrible aggression of uh, Maduro or something. And the really uh, drawing on what you've said there, Dermot, the idea that um, that the uh, the Koreans would want to would actually want to wage war upon each other following a successful struggle against the Japanese and the awful reality of the Japanese occupation for, well, 40 years or more. Why on earth would uh, Kim Il-sung and the, the communists of Korea really wish to wage war against other Koreans? It doesn't make any sense, any more than it would have made sense for uh, in uh, for Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese, who were also wanting to uh, round about the same, uh, just a little bit later, um, try and they were desperate to try and reunify their country peacefully as well. Um, but we're supposed to believe the propaganda that somehow uh, these the all these countries were desperate to prolong these terrible wars, which had cost them so many millions of lives. It's ludicrous when you actually sit down and think about it, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so we go with the Korean War uh, begins. I mean, any anywhere where uh, one any either of the Dulles brothers turns up uh, bad, bad trouble usually followed. Um, so the uh, what's known as the Korean War in the West begins and what you see um, in the the early part of the war if I've got this my reading on it correct is that the the uh, the forces of what was to become the DPRK were initially uh, militarily very successful in uh, pushing back of the attempted invasion and essentially, they managed to roll back the uh, the, the South Korean forces to uh, the far south of what's now uh, South Korea. Have I, have I got that correct? Emma?
1: That, that is uh, uh, correct, because uh, they, they went o- over to an all out offensive. Uh, and, uh, you know, they took the uh, position that, uh, you know, you know, they would. Uh, liberate South Korea, they would destroy the puppet regime as the initiators of the war, basically Hmm. to uproot uh, the source of war. Hmm. Uh, So they liberated about 90% of the territory of South Korea and uh, people's committees uh, were set uh, again, were revived in South Korea and land reform was carried out late labor
0: a labor law was
1: uh, was instituted
0: and the uh, the fact that this South Korean regime survived is really it's solely down to an enormous mobilization of military force marshaled by the uh, well the military ruler of Japan at the time in reality uh, MacArthur and the the Americans essentially Recruiting most of the armies of uh, Western Europe and further afield to start a gigantic um, offensive against the uh, the the socialist forces there. Uh, Most famously, the landing if the the propaganda is in any way correct, the landing at the landing at Inchon, and then the the war then swings in the other direction, leading lead lead, it leads us to the dramatic intervention of also the, um, the, the volunteers from People's China. Uh, but Dermot, can you talk about that and the, 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 the backwards and forwards motion of the war, and also the the effect of the war on the Korean people as a whole, because it would wrought a huge amount of destruction, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, I uh, say so, so quite, quite a lot there. Hmm. Uh, Basically, what the U.S. did um, was they railroaded uh, a resolution that they would actually prepared in advance before it started uh, through the U.N. Security Council, uh, taking advantage of the fact that the Soviet Union was boycotting the U.N. Security Council at the time uh, because China, people's China had been excluded from it. Uh, so it was very easy for for the US to railroad this uh, resolution uh, through the UN Security Council, which basically blamed the DPRK for the war mm. and which authorised the uh, so-called UN intervention, which, of course, wasn't uh, uh UN uh, intervention. It was uh, the U.S. and its uh, satellite countries, those countries that followed the U.S. line uh, yeah, in, intervening in, in Korea. And they sent massive uh, forces in into Korea uh, to our eternal shame in this country. Uh, uh, you know, British troops were sent uh, like the Gloucester Regiment. And I think that's... Uh, uh, a Scots Guards Brigade, uh, mm. the I think the, the uh, Northern Ireland Rifles uh, as well, uh, and the you know British troops were uh, sent, and uh, a number of countries. Uh, the only Latin American country to actually send troops to the Korean War was Colombia. Mm. Uh, you know, terrible uh, fascist regime.
0: Nothing ever changes there, does it? Yeah.
1: And, and, you know, Ethiopia under Haley Slassey, apartheid South Africa, uh, etc. The, in fact, only 15 UN member states actually sent uh, forces to the the Korean war, Uh, you know, it was it was just a, a small uh, number of uh, UN states and uh, uh, a couple of countries also uh, support, supported the US war effort behind the scenes, you know, just sending assistance. And uh, a little known fact is that Japan was also involved. Uh, their troops were actually fighting in, in South Korean army uniforms and uh, <laughs> Uh, the Japanese uh, Navy had sort of sent lights, uh to uh, uh, Korea. Hmm. And, uh, but ba- basically, uh, MacArthur was not only talking about uh, destroying and occupying uh, the DPRK, okay, but he was talking of taking the war into China Yes, uh, and in fact, I think parts of China even even got bombed. Yes, uh, by the U.S. Uh, so uh, the Chinese government, uh, as you say, they were volunteers. Uh, they were not re- uh, regular P- PLA troops. They were volunteers, you know, sent a uh, force in, into uh, Korea, uh, and they say, uh and. Uh, un- under slogan, uh, resist US uh, uh, aggression, uh, defend the uh, motherland. And they uh, fought, uh, you know, with the Korean pe- People's Army and were actually under the command of the, the Korean People's Army as as well. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, uh, but... Basically, you know, it would take a long time to sort of go yeah. through the different ins
0: and outs of of the war. Just to jump in there for a moment, Derma, I think it's it's also fair to say, isn't it, that the um that the 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 military achievements of the DPRK and the, their Chinese allies were significant in that they'd MacArthur with um, an army that was very t- technically superior in terms of the equipment it had available to it did drive the dprk forces back but with the addition of their chinese allies they managed to again hurl the uh, the the us forces and the south korean forces right the way back again um so it's really it's something that's not explored a great deal but i think it's fair to say that there was it's a it's a that the in, ter- in military terms pound for pound the DPRK and their allies hit a lot harder um the united states than the united states were able to them and, f- and fought a lot harder as well am i accurate in that description
1: yeah i yeah i mean but yeah uh basically uh yeah it it was a defeat uh for the us uh, mm. the us uh commander because uh you know, they, they had to change the US commander in, in Korea several times, MacArthur. Well, they had to sack MacArthur, didn't yeah, they? He sacked. Got, got and in the end, uh, the US asked for negotiations. Yes. And uh, yes. the US General, Mark Clark, signed the armistice agreement which mm. obviously is not a permanent peace agreement, but he, he signed the armistice agreement and he said, oh, well, I gained the unenviable distinction of being the first United States commander in history uh, to su- sign an armistice without a victory. And in fact, the armistice agreement also contained a provision that uh, the US would withdraw from South Korea and that there would be an international conference on korea's uh, future, and of course you know they they uh, never adhered to that clause but that's that's uh, a different uh, story and uh, uh, a right wing military u s military historian uh, bevin alexander and you, you can google the book uh you know he, he wrote a book called Korea the Lost War. Mm. He said, "Oh, it was the first war we we lost. Uh, the U.S. Uh, losses in in the war were were very, very big. Uh, you know, far even if you accept the U.S.'s own sort of doctored and scaled down figures, uh, the losses were, were greater than say in Iraq and Afghanistan.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: and it was, you know, there were a lot of military disasters for." for the the, the Americans, because in the first stage of the war, uh, when, when the sort of DPRK uh, went into the South and liberated Seoul on the third day of the war, yes. and uh, you had this big battle um, between the US 24th Division and the KPA at Daejeon, uh, you know, at that point, you know, the Chinese were not in Korea, and they, they captured General uh, William F. Dean,
2: Hmm.
1: I think. I mean, I may be wrong about this, but I think that was the first ever time a uh, U.S. general got captured by opposing forces.
0: Uh, I think. I think. I don't think that even happened in the Western Front in World War Two. Yeah, uh, I think that's the most. That's the first I've heard of that. Anyway, the, I don't think they. I think the most senior uh, officers of the U.S. Army that ever got captured by the, the Nazis was like colonel or uh, slightly below general level, but never a a full-on commander. Yes. uh, It was a humiliating uh, defeat for
1: the US. Um, Anyway, uh, so just coming on to, you know, you you asked about the the effect of the war on the Korean people and, uh, you know, the... Human and material losses were massive. Uh, There I've seen a figure that 1.2 million people were basically killed in cold blood by the US occupiers.
0: They're talking massacres of um, unarmed uh, civilians or Uh, people who had surrendered. That's right, Uh, you know,
1: this this is uh, the US just massacring uh, civilians and that excludes the uh toll uh from uh, the bombing, which yes. is, is another question. Uh my, myself, I have visited the Sinchen Museum, uh which is like a, a memorial uh to those killed by the US, and it's also an anti US education center. Uh, and since on uh, sort of counting the southern part of the DPRK, and there the US killed 35,383 people, basically a quarter of the entire population, in mm. six weeks. That would give you some idea of the enormity of it. Uh, the US uh, also used biological warfare, which they, they tried to deny at the time and tried to sort of cover up and uh because a number of uh captured americans in korea you know admitted uh this that, that they used germ warfare in the u.s tried to sell this was down to communist brainwashing and torture uh
0: manchurian candidates damn it <laughs> that
1: that's right but i mean uh Yeah, I think in the last couple of years, uh, sort research uh, has unearthed that this did indeed happen, and that is a crime of great enormity. You know, because biological weapons are obviously outlawed by all international treaties. Uh,
0: It also doesn't it. It also echoes has echoes of what the um, the Japanese forces did in in occupied China. They were um, using crude and primitive biological weaponry on the Chinese there. Uh, so it's the echoes of the, um, the Americans' uh, former opponents in the Japanese imperial occupations. Uh, uh, There's very, the very loud echoes there, isn't it? Yes, uh, that's, uh, that, that's correct. And uh, the US
1: carried out saturation bombing of the DPRK virtually from uh, day one. And uh, they actually dropped one bomb per inhabitant in Pyongyang. Uh, I think the US Air Force General said that that they'd run out of targets uh, in in the northern part of Korea. Uh, The destruction was immense. Uh, There were only three buildings left standing in in Pyongyang. It it was uh, that bad. And in fact, uh, uh, the US boasted, they said, oh, Pyongyang will not rise again for 100 years. And Mm -hmm. apparently, uh, I I don't know which country it was, but some people sympathetic to the DPRK said, uh, you know, the DPRK should uh, change the capital build another city somewhere else because they thought it would be impossible uh to restore the uh the damage in pyongyang it was it was that bad the uh, you know the the lo- uh, losses were were uh, immense uh you know i think it's quite hard to calculate uh uh in terms of dollars or pounds just just how much damage had been caused by by the americans
0: well, just looking at the um, any, I mean, if you Google uh, any pictures of the uh, the aftermath of the in the end the after the end of the, the war, just the the devastation is easily on a uh, greater than anything that was done in Western Europe by the Nazis, um, yeah, even right. somewhere like I mean, it's on a on a par with. Uh, the damage that was done to civilians in Japan by the firebombing of like, places like Tokyo, perhaps, but even greater than that, in that, or everything was destroyed. It's almost as if the attitude of the US imperialists is: is "Well, if we can't have it, neither can you. Uh, yeah. If we can't, if we can't win, then we'll make sure that uh, you are destroyed." Uh, that seems to be their modus operandi in every war they fight. Yes. Yeah. Um so we we find ourselves at a point where in the in the history now you've got, the Americans have essentially been defeated in all but name. Uh the armistice is essentially more of a it's it's just about saves their face. Um you've now got a divided Korean peninsula between a uh, US puppet regime in the south and you have the beginnings of the, uh, the D- Democratic People's Republic of Korea in the north. So I want to, a slight change of pace, Dermot. I want to now look at the an idea which is much mentioned uh, amongst leftist circles, but very seldom understood, which is the the douche idea, which was a, um, the ideas of uh, Kim Il-sung and then developed by his successors. Um, now, i'd like to you if you can just to give an introduction to that to our listeners just to um say what it is how it has guided the uh the governance of uh, the dprk and how it um how it lives on and has to to be developed to this day
1: right okay uh again a very very big uh task uh here as you say it's something uh is uh Massively uh, misunderstood by Western leftists uh, mm. and there's a lot of, uh, I think wrong wrong ideas uh, about it uh, You know so some some people say it's simply self-reliance uh, There's an element of truth in that but uh, that that doesn't give you the uh, full picture mm. uh, it, It's um, based on the philosophical concept that uh, humans are the, the masters of everything and uh can uh, determine their, their own destiny that's uh you know trying to put it uh in a nutshell in ph- philosophical uh terms uh the whole uh, experience of, of korea was uh you know one of uh different outside powers uh, trying uh to uh, dominate, to exploit, to control the the country. You say you you had Japan, which we spoke about uh, earlier, and uh, you know obviously the the U.S. as well and other Western powers. And you also had the the situation where the DPRK was on the uh, doorstep of the uh, two big socialist countries, uh, which uh, also uh, had their own ideas about uh, you know, ha- how the uh, DPRK uh, should uh, develop. And as I say, uh, the Juche idea goes right back uh, uh, to the speech President Kim Il-sung made in 1930, the path of the Korean Revolution. Uh, He later used the term Duce for the first time uh, in December 1955 when he made a speech to party propagandists, uh, stressing the need to establish Duce in ideological work and that everything uh, should centre on the needs of the Korean Revolution. Uh, The establishment of Duce was also bound up with the struggle against modern revisionism, which had appeared in the socialist camp and the struggle against uh, big power chauvinism. Uh, The USSR had become uh, revisionist in uh, around 1956. Khrushchev's uh, Mm a uh, speech to the twentieth uh, congress. And uh, you yeah know, the the CPSU tried to impose that line on the rest of the socialist camp, including the DPRK. Yeah. And you uh, you had an incident where where uh different uh factions in in the the leadership of the workers' party career tried to seize power each Uh, with the backing of outside countries. And also at the time, you know, the DPRK was was recovering from the war damage. It was embarking on industrialisation and it was embarking on the full-scale socialist transformation of the productive forces. Uh, So there was a need for solutions based on the... uh, uh, reality uh, but you know some people were trying to copy uh, foreign models or uh, insisting on a very dogmatic sort of t- textbook a- approach and was saying oh you can't do such and such because uh, you know Engels uh, didn't say this and, uh, and this kind of thing uh, so th- there was a need to move forward basically uh, and this meant actually struggling against uh, the these forces that were the, that were holding uh uh the uh socialist revolution in korea back so yes. that's why uh president uh Sung uh, established uh Duke and in terms of, i mean what what the listeners uh will want, want to know what, what does it mean in bread and butter terms yes. rather than ter- uh, the uh, philo- uh, philosophy, uh, philosophy. And it, in some terms of practical pol- uh, politics, uh, it, it means uh, due chain ideology, independence in politics. You know, the DPRK uh, is not a satellite of another country. You know, it's got total political independence. It means self-sufficiency in the economy mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't mean to say that they reject totally any foreign assistance or cooperation or sort of close the economy uh yeah, but you know the idea that the economy will stand on its own two feet and will serve the needs of its people and uh, will not be subordinated to the needs of another country. And then the third uh, sort of pillar is self-reliance in defence, you know, not yes. depending on outside forces for your own uh, defence. And, you know, you, you, you can see this today, with you know, with the DPRK has developed its own independent uh, deterrent, uh, ICBMs yes. and so on and uh powerful armed forces uh so that's it in practical uh terms uh chairman kim jong-il uh he developed the Juche idea in depth and systematized it uh he wrote the uh treatise uh, on the Juche idea in 1982 Mm. uh which uh Looked at uh, the Duce idea in philosophical terms, you know, the idea that, you know, man is the master and decides everything. The idea that the popular masses are the uh, makers of uh, history and uh, he defined man as having the qualities of independence, Uh, you know, the idea that that, uh, man or humans want, you know, uh, intrinsic intrinsic uh, want to uh, live as masters of their own environment. Mm. The uh, idea of creativity, you know, that they, they have the power to reshape the environment and consciousness, you know, simply meaning they, they are conscious of their role. Mm. And, you know, saw so these three features as being interlinked, basically uh dovetailing.
0: Yes. So just to uh, pause there for a moment, Dermot, I want to um just uh, sort of go uh, draw on that because again, the uh, everything you've just talked about there is that's literally the the opposite of how uh, the DPRK is always portrayed, how its leaders are portrayed, how its systems of are thought are portrayed. And more specific specifically, the idea of the DPRK as They from the earliest stages, they're building socialism on their on their terms and according to the specific conditions of that they found themselves in. So they were never um, just the um, uh, any kind of satellite of either uh, the uh, the PRC or the USSR, particularly after Khrushchev's um, so-called secret speech. Uh, In reality, um, Khrushchev carpeting himself before imperialism, um, the, uh, the development of socialism in the DPRK uh, proceeds on independent lines. And it, uh, also it's important to emphasize that this idea of independence did help them uh, uh, in their recovery from the war and also to build to build a genuinely independent nation going forward. And I think that one of the things I want to emphasize to listeners is even back sixty years ago, to build uh, a nation that was independent of the superpower blocs, especially a small a small nation that was recovering from horrific damage of a long term war and occupation, is a tremendously difficult thing to do. So, moving to like the achievements of socialism in uh, the DPRK. Um, it's often portrayed as uh, in the in the Western media, as, as oh look at it, it's backward, it's they're all starving, etc. But I think it's important to emphasise that coming from a point of total destruction in uh, the early nineteen fifties, the DPRK economy and society made huge advances uh, up in, in the peri- over the ne- period of the next thirty years. So, Dermot, can you talk a little bit about how they recovered from uh, the destruction of the war? And the the achievements of the initial socialist period there.
1: Right. Uh, well, as, as you say, the war damage was immense, I, I think, to us quite unimaginable. And that had actually been basically uh, cleared away by about the late 50s. Uh, DPRK uh, had uh, recovered from from the war by 1956 and embarked on the uh, five-year plan for industrialization and uh, you know uh, the DPRK economy uh, grew at an astonishing rate in one year uh, the increase in industrial output was 36 percent which was actually even faster than the 20% uh, that was achieved by the Soviet Union in the uh, 1930s and the the five-year plan was uh, fulfilled ahead of schedule. Uh, The DPRK had become an industrial state by 1970. The uh, economy grew at the rate of uh, 19% uh, per, per year, Between uh, 1957 and uh, uh, 1970, uh, the DPRK was able to sort of turn out uh, big machines uh, like a 6000 ton power press. It was able to make its lorries, tractors, bulldozers and uh, railway uh, locomotives to uh, uh, give an example. the, the big power chauvinists had tried to uh, oppose uh, the uh, DPRK's industrialisation and even uh, had uh, sort of made jokes about, uh, you know, the DPRK building uh, electric uh, railway locomotives where, where an ambassador of an unnamed country uh, uh, said, uh, you, know, you know, something like he would heat, eat his hat or some, some words to that effect, if the DPRK produced its own electric
2: logo,
1: uh, mm. it, it did. Yes. Uh, and also in the early 60s, the DPRK uh, became self-sufficient in food, mm. uh, grain, which was a big achievement because the uh, area of uh, arable land in the DPRK is quite limited because it's quite uh, a mountainous uh, country. You know, it's uh, if you imagine it uh, like Wales or Scotland or the Lake District, you'll get get a picture. Yeah. Uh, so not a lot of land to to uh, grow stuff on. Uh, so that that was also a great achievement. Uh, and in terms of uh tangible benefits uh for for the korean uh people uh you know uh, so you know it wasn't just uh, building industry for the sake of building industry uh, uh there were bigger uh, advances in living standards uh uh free healthcare had already been introduced uh, during the period of the war in 1953 Uh, totally free education uh, by 1959. Uh, uh, You obviously had full employment and, uh, you know, provisions supplied at very low cost to uh, people, uh, virtually free housing. And one astonishing achievement uh, uh, was that in 1974 all taxation was abolished
0: you well, know, think the U.S. libertarians
1: would love it, though? <laughs> well, so, well, apparently some, some, some of them do. Yeah, uh, so, some of them do. And uh, e- e- even one, one or two Tories here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it was uh, it was abolished because, uh, you know, taxation was viewed as a burden on the people. Uh, and the D.P.I.K. was able to meet the need for revenue. Uh, for uh, construction and for uh, public services from
0: the profits of state-owned industry. Mm. See, so, yeah, that's a, an, a, that's something I only found out about the abolition of taxation very, very recently, actually, and the the ability to actually uh, meet this meet the requirements of the population via the the profits from the state sector. Again, that's a, that's a huge achievement. Again, for a, a small nation recovering from an incredibly destructive war, and that's uh, something that that there should be uh, more, much more widely known and in fact celebrated. Yes. Uh, but again, it's something that is buried and you can't talk about it. And this is uh, this is one of the big um, scandals and one of the big secrets, certainly of the um, if you think about the period after the uh, the end of the Soviet Union, which is that. You the the number of courses I remember from my days in university about governance in the so-called third world. How do we develop the? How are these countries going to develop? How are they going to develop systems that uh, uh, aren't corrupt and that benefit the people? And all these the usual uh, pablum that these people come out with. And the actual reality is that the biggest achievements. In the world, and the the, and the, the, the newly freed countries under form, formerly under imperial occupation, they the 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 best way to actually guarantee the true development um, in the way that benefits the people in ways that secure true independence was always through socialist methods pro- uh, applied to local conditions. And the case of the DPRK in the period after the war um, proves that again, doesn't it, Dermot?
1: Yes, that's absolutely great. Mm.
0: So, um, but not that you'll get that in a um, in a global governance course anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. But um, I want to talk about so the the period um, after the fall of the the socialist bloc in the in in Eastern Europe and the USSR, because the I think it's uh, it was a, as an, an object of extreme bafflement and in um for the the Western powers that uh, places like the dPRK um, survived the the end of the USSR but drawing on some of what you've said before about uh, the duche idea and the way that the uh, dPRK socialism was developed they were actually were they is it fair to say that they were actually in a better position to survive the sudden implosion of the USSR? than many other places because of their emphasis on independence and as much as you can, self-reliance.
1: Yes, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the DPRK had built up an independent economy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, had an industrial base where I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, some some other countries uh, did not. Mm. Uh, so this, uh, you know, served it uh, very well. And uh, I can remember actually uh, reading in, in Newsweek magazine in 1991, just after the uh, the unsuccessful uh, coup, uh, the State Committee for the State of Emergency in the oh, U.S. Yes. Uh, Newsweek sort of said, oh, you know, DPRK wouldn't uh, last through the winter. Hmm. So it was bound to collapse and, uh, you know, I lost count of the number of times different uh journalists so called uh, academics so called experts on the dPRK predicted the uh, collapse of uh, the dprk there 's no denying that it, it faced a very difficult uh, situation but uh, uh, as as you say they had the duty idea this uh, self reliance and uh an industrial
0: uh, base yeah and let's let's look at the um that period uh, just a, a little bit more detail because i think it's it's crucial for our understanding those of us who want to those of us who want to see a, a socialist system triumph globally those of us who want to it wants genuine socialism to come to this country we have to understand what went wrong with those countries where there was an implosion between eighty nine and ninety one. Now, of course, on the left there is about as many different opinions on this as there are pairs of trousers. But <laughs> uh, you, I, I, what I'm going to put forward now, Dermot, is my own particular interpretation. If you have a, a different interpretation, by all means, feel free to jump in. But from my studies of East the Eastern Europe and, but principally, the Soviet Union. From the time of khrushchev what you get is a growing um first nascent and then becoming very much larger underground capitalist class uh, semi-illegal semi-legal and also that capitalist class then being reflected inside the communist party of the soviet union itself in the growth of um, pe- open petty bourgeois tendencies and open in the end, open pro-capitalist anti-party tendencies that were brought into the open, really uh, out into the open by uh, the Gorbachev period. And his attempt to, well, whatever way you want to put it, his attempt to uh, fundamentally change the economic and political structure of the USSR, all it did was bring those powers out into the open to the point where they could seize power openly and to do what they wished to do which was do away with the socialist system entirely so my point overall is that the what was done to the uh, the uh, eastern bloc nations and the soviet union wasn't something these weren't popular revolutions in the way that they are portrayed what happened was the growth of a uh, of a nascent bourgeoisie and its reflection in the political hierarchy enabled the essentially, the the state structure went rotten from the top. Uh, they were able to pull the plug on the socialist systems of the Eastern European Nations and the USSR against often the will of the working class, certainly. Um, and that, that was a, a gigantic human catastrophe, as it turned out, for almost all of these countries. So well, my question, uh, leading from my, my take on that, and as I said, Dermot, do feel free to disagree if you have a different take. Is that when you look at the DPRK, not only did the revolution have much, uh, have very deep and very strong roots in the DPRK, but also those who were in the uh, the state structure itself hadn't been hadn't been gone down the same route as the. The revisionist parties in uh, the C- the CPSU in Eastern Europe, in that a a new bourgeoisie hadn't grown up in the same way in the DPRK as it did in uh, the USSR and other Eastern European countries. Um, can you can, so? Can you give me your take on the um, the the survival there, Dermot? And is does my do you disagree disagree with my interpretation there?
1: No, I would. Um broadly agree with what what you you said i think that is uh, a crucial point you know the what starts at the top mm. uh, not not at the bottom uh and uh, i think that was uh, a very key uh, factor uh you know you had uh, uh, re- you know revisionism since the early 60s uh in the ussr and uh, that that was basically uh imposed uh on the rest of, of the socialist countries those uh socialist countries that were uh very much under the soviet orbit and uh, of course the dprk uh they refused to join the so-called council for mutual economic assistance they were not a member of that and uh the DPRK, in their own independent way, opposed uh, revisionism. Uh, they didn't go down the sort of very leftist road that the sort of Chinese did in the 60s, but nevertheless, they uh, opposed uh, revisionism. Uh, yeah, I'm not so, yeah, you know, I'm not uh, totally uh, f- sort of familiar with the, the idea of the shadow bourgeoisie, mm. uh, but I believe Nina Andreeva, the uh, uh, Soviet Bolshevik communist leader, who was who's yeah. also quite a good friend of the DPRK, I believe she uh, wrote quite extensively about the you know the shadow bourgeoisie in the uh, 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 Soviet Union and, and within the CPSU uh, leadership. Yeah. The upper echelons of the uh CPSU. Uh and what the the other factor was you, you know, uh I think uh US imperialism uh, uh, and uh imperialism in general, uh they, they made massive ideological and cultural inroads in into uh uh the particularly the east european socialist countries mm. and uh, that was my my own personal uh experience cuz i i visited uh, uh, hungary in the 80s and sort of traveled through the gdr yeah Czechoslovakia, and um, i mean hungary was just full of uh, western cultural influence you had madonna posters on sale even, <laughs> even Ra- rambo communist film you you had that on sale in a hungarian market uh you know you had uh mcdonald's in budapest you had a a shop of uh you know uh, a street of shops selling western designer clothes uh the influence uh of uh imperialism uh, you know was quite quite deep and I suppose, yeah, you could say that probably would tie in with, uh, you know, sort of uh, hidden bourgeoisie or shadow bourgeoisie, mm. or, or uh, already uh, there. I think that's that's quite uh, an important factor because uh, uh, I think some some of the uh, so, you know so called uh, bourgeoisie. Experts writing about the uh, DPRK and predicting the collapse. You know, they they've got this uh, notion that the uh, you know the the collapse of the USSR and uh, other socialist countries was due to popular pressure, uh, but but it it, it was not, mm. uh, and you know they you know they've got the wrong wrong understanding of. of 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 what happens uh and you know it becomes doubly and trebly wrong when they start trying to apply
0: it uh to the dprk yes and Uh, yeah i was going to say just the to to to, uh look at look, look further at this the um where the uh population's actually got a choice like uh the 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 referendum on the continuation of the USSR in the early in early 91. um, uh, Judged to be free and fair even by Western observers, even in countries like Ukraine, which were portrayed as very anti-Soviet now, there was majorities voted in favor of maintaining the system. Uh, The working class in in all those nations wanted to maintain the system with all the problems that of course it did have. Um, but it, what happened? The problem that they had was that the working class was not in power in any of those countries anymore. Um, the, the the there was the, the 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 power structure was dominated by uh, in pro-imperialist elements, which then led to the the human tragedy of uh, Russia and other countries in the 90s and the collapse in health and living standards there. So that leads me to my next uh, point uh, bringing us more up to date which is the period of the 90s into the 2000s which um is going to is it, it, when everybody all the bourgeois so called experts expect the DPRK to implode it doesn't and you you have um the the death of president kim il sung and the coming into power of Ki, of, of kim jong il um so how uh, how does the, uh, the dprk get through this period in the 90s which is so difficult for um themselves also reflected in the uh, what was castro called the special period in cuba um a period of great pressure on the on the socialist system and huge counter-offensive from the forces of empire so where the but the dprk comes through that so what are the major reasons for them being able to get through that very difficult period, Derma?
1: Right. Well, as, as you say, it was a very difficult period uh, for the DPRK. It's called the arduous march and forced march uh, period in the DPRK, hmm. uh, when you, as say, you you had the uh, loss of President Kim Il Sung, but you also had the collapse of the world socialist. And a series of uh, natural disasters in the DPRK that uh, uh, Chairman Kim Jong il uh, firstly uh, took the line that so long as they have the party, the government, and the people in mm. the territory of Korea, that they uh, would survive. Mm. Uh, he also uh, developed the uh, theory of Songham, the idea of. Uh, Giving priority uh, yeah, yeah, to the military forces mm. uh, when the imperialists were sort of try, trying to uh, stifle uh, the DPRK and uh, when, uh, you know, they they, uh, they actually openly leaked uh, some of their military pr- plans to in- invade the DPRK, you know, there was a new updated war plan and that mm. was deliberately leaked to the press with the, the aim of trying to frighten and intimidate uh, the DPRK uh, so you know he put forward the the idea of strengthening uh, the military uh, at the same time in the DPRK though it was uh, a tremendously difficult period uh, you, know, you know it's uh, a fact that uh, he uh, always made made sure that uh, uh for uh the soya milk was uh supplied to the uh, children in the kindergartens mm. uh you know even even at at the worst uh, times and my, my understanding was no school or hospital in the dprk closed in that period mm. uh, despite the fact uh that it was a very uh difficult period Uh, he emphasized self-reliance and uh, one uh, some DPRK uh, province I think uh, uh, Jagan province uh, they became the model uh, or pace setters for self-reliance and he uh, publicized their their example amongst the uh, people Mm. So, people rose up in, in the spirit of self reliance, and these sort of difficulties were basically solved by about 2000. And uh, he then put forward the concept of building a uh, powerful socialist country which would be strong in all fields. Uh, yes. And uh, increasingly, they, they looked to the development of uh, technology uh you know what they called CNC, you know, I think uh computer uh numerical control, I think think it stands for. But there was even a Korean popular song
2: mm.
1: about it. So they started to develop uh, uh technology in, in a very uh, big big way. Uh and uh, you know at the same time they also developed the uh, nuclear deterrent. Yes, to defend themselves, you know, particularly after looking at the experience of Iraq. Yes, uh, which uh, ironically
0: didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And uh, was if they had them, they'd st- if they'd had them, then um, Saddam Hussein would still be alive <laughs> and be in yeah. power. Because there there's, I think the, <clears throat> the DPRK government's judgment on Uh, the developing of their own deterrent has proven to be correct. Um, um, Saddam Hussein didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, The uh, Libyan government under Gaddafi got rid of them and then was uh, brutally uh, done away with in the early uh, part of the previous decade. So it really that was um, a, a sensible decision and Really, it's the only way to guarantee yourself from um, at open attack by the imperialists. I think it's fair to say. Yes. Mm. So the the DPRK and its government they they come through the uh, a period of immense difficulty um, in the nineteen nineties. It's uh, the the imperialist pressure doesn't does not let up. Uh, you have um, Bush chucking the DPRK in there with these uh, so-called axis of evil speech um, you um, which was a work of fiction if ever there was one yeah. and they we can't we, we come up through uh, to today with different american administrations essentially trying different tactics to undermine um, the DPRK. So sometimes you'll get, they will try some elements of negotiation. Sometimes they'll try uh, belligerence and threats, um, none of which appear to have actually worked until we come to the uh, the unpredictable reign of uh, President Donald Trump. Um, the first American president to step foot in the DPRK, which uh, is something I would never have anticipated, but it's been a, a few years now of unexpected developments. So, uh, the the American approach to the, the the DPRK, regardless of whatever Trump says it is, um, or however genuine he may be in wanting to make some kind of final settlement, um, the imperialist system can't help but push for the destruction of any alternative, no matter what any American president actually says, they serve a system which aims for the, the liquidation of all forms of socialism and the, the essentially return to uh, if not direct colonization, then hyper exploitation of all countries that try for genuine independence. So what is the the state of play now in uh, the DPRK and their engagement with this uh, failed Trump peace initiative? how are they, what is your interpretation, of how they're looking at this uh, going forward? So you have, you know, Trump saying, oh, I want to talk, then Bolton leaking things and saying, oh, we're going for the Libya model. What's the current state of play there with the, the DPRK's government instead? How, how are they seeing the relationship with uh, the imperialists, if there is any, and how are they seeing their own course forward at the moment?
1: right uh well you know i think you've uh correctly uh summed up uh uh, trump was very much a a prisoner of his own state of Mm. his own military industrial complex uh which uh meant that you know whatever his subjective uh will uh desire was or or idea was you know he was ultimately going to be constrained uh I think mean, the DPRK never had any illusions about the uh, US or, or about Trump. Uh, you know, they decided to de-escalate the situation. Uh, you know, didn't want to get blamed for world war three breaking out because mm. at times it did look like that. Uh, it was quite a remarkable turnaround in the situation. Like, like you say, first u.s president sort of stepping serving u.s president stepping foot in uh onto dprk soil and you know two summits with the dprk uh were held all look uh very surreal uh but yeah the position of the dprk is it doesn't believe uh it rejects the so-called libyan model mm. uh yeah, you know, I I think these these two poles of error that I I see uh, uh, sort of floated around the place. Uh, one is, you know, the idea that the DPRK is is going to unilaterally disarm, and and you oh. know, like Libya, and uh, not only that, it's going to open up oh. in Pyongyang and. Uh, all, all sorts of things, you know, uh, and the other other uh, sort of wrong idea from like extreme reactionaries uh, uh, is, you know, the DPRK has no uh, intention whatsoever of giving up the nuclear deterrent, and that you know, basically they, you know, they play, they play all sorts of uh, tricks uh, to try and keep it. will will even pretend to disarm uh, when they're not uh, you know when they haven't Uh, so both both these ideas are are quite wrong uh if uh the us ends its nuclear threat against the dprk and its hostile policy against the dprk then the dprk will enter into negotiations Uh, with the US but only under those uh, conditions Uh, and that uh, you know this would mean the US uh, withdrawing any uh, all and any nuclear weapons that are uh, stationed in the vicinity of the Korean uh, Peninsula stopping targeting the the, the DPRK with its nuclear weapons. And ending the hostile policy would mean uh, lifting the sanctions, but uh, probably more than that, you, you know, that the various uh, psychological warfare weapons uh, that the uh, US has created, uh, you know, this uh, whole uh, mechanism of propaganda against the deep arcane regime change would have to be abandoned mm. by by the U.S. and the U.S. would have to develop relations with the DPRK in an honest way and uh, totally respecting the DPRK's independence. Mm. Negotiations are uh, uh, will can uh, and will take place, but uh, only if those conditions are met. Uh, I suspect uh, Trump uh, promised uh, the DPRK all kinds of things. Mm. Uh, which he, he probably then realized he could not
0: deliver yes i mean the um i think he probably uh, as you said um, made i made dozens of commitments which um, the american um, imperial system is incapable of delivering on um, or certainly trump is not the man to face down the imperial bureaucracy in the in the united states uh, though i would struggle to think of anybody who could actually do that um and what the um big takeaway i i i get from what you've been saying there is that essentially what the dpa dprk's position is that they want the u.s to negotiate them with them sovereign state to sovereign state not um,
1: that's uh, correct
0: yeah not um you know supplicant to master uh which is how the u.s approaches its relationship with most other countries in the world, really, Um, more. uh, One of the useful things about Trump is that he does at least make that abundantly clear in a way that Obama would dress it up in a fancy speech or even Bush would sort of massage it slightly. Trump just says it most of the time, which is actually quite useful for discerning uh, how the, the US actually see the US ruling class actually sees the rest of the world which is one of the reasons why the liberals in the in the United States so, get so mad at him. But I wanted just to um, sort of bring our discussion to a, a close by we haven't we, we talked about the south of um, Korea, um, but there, it's often nowadays um, because it was, as you say, run by a very long for a very long time by quite a brutal militarist regime under Syngman Rhee. Um, these days it's uh, the, the the rhetoric is oh we'll look at south korea it's this uh, economic uh, powerhouse that's uh, all really these successful multinational companies in it it's got a democracy etc cetera, etc cetera. but w- what is your take on how genuinely independent can the republic of korea south korea be because to my mind it has a, essentially a us army of occupation sitting in it and It's presidents are incredibly limited in their room for maneuver, especially with their relation in regard to their relations with both uh, foreign states and the relation to their own brother Koreans as well. So what is your take on the actual state of South Korea and um, what can the the South Korean government's word really be worth much when there is um, a U.S. army with a bayonet at its back? Yeah, I mean, I
1: think what, what you say is uh, absolutely correct. I mean, South Korea uh, is an artificial entity uh, which was really created by by the US ban in the first place. Uh, some people don't like uh, KFA calling uh, the South Korea puppet regime, but uh, that that's what it really is. Uh, uh, in recent years... Uh, You've seen uh, the replacement of uh, the fascist dictatorships uh, with uh, a more liberal regime. The regime of Moon Jae-in, mm. uh, who is yeah you know, basically a liberal, uh, so he's sort of distancing himself from uh, some previous uh, South Korean regimes, and you know he's held free. Inter-Korean summits with the DPRK, but uh, nothing has been. None of the agreements have been implemented. And the the thing is, the ultimate uh, f- uh, problem he faces uh, is, uh, you know, he's not in, in uh, an independent actor. Mm. Uh, you know, he has to please the US. He can't do. Uh, anything without the US uh, permission and that that is uh, a very huge constraint Mm. Uh, and he's not called for the end of the US occupation of South Korea and at the moment uh, Trump is trying to get South Korea to pay even more money for the US troops to occupy uh, South Korea Mm. Uh, they they actually collect money from South Korea uh, for the U.S. troops occupying it. It's it's like a, a form of old fashioned colonial tribute.
0: Yes, they, that's
1: exactly it. what it is. We're expecting to send money back uh, to the uh, to the suzerain uh, mm. state, very much like that. So, yeah, I mean, uh, South Korea doesn't doesn't have independence and it's a major constraint on whoever comes to power there uh and you know so far we've never seen a a south korean leader who who has said well i want the u.s out of south korea uh you know i think the u.s would actually prevent such a leader coming to power in south korea
0: yes and also you have then also you have the south korean state machine which yeah. is built by the us is filled with people who are uh, uh, even on my more cursory readings are uh, absolutely fanatical opponents of socialism fanatical opponents of the uh, the dprk and have a vested interest in the in things remaining as they are with the us occupying the country and i think they they so you have a a president in Moon Jae-in who might genuinely want to secure, secure lasting peace and joint development with the DPRK but you have a machine around him and a machine beyond that in the United States which is dedicated to the opposite um, so how, as you say, how far you can you can, any DPRK leadership can look at the negotiations they hold with the South as being actually with the South uh, rather than you might as well go and talk directly to the White House in some respects, right. because at least there you're talking to somebody who might be a decision maker. But even there, as we said about Trump, you've got presidents who are just essentially prisoners of the, well, Marx used to refer to the Prussian government as a, as a militarist clique. Um, I think that's very true of the Americans. You, it, the, the government is, it's an imperial system. It's a militarist clique, which it holds its own civilian government essentially hostage uh, from time to time and is viscerally opposed to change, which does lead us to consider what the as, as I, we began this discussion about talking about, you know, propaganda and ideas of freedom. I think we in the, the Western world have a very deliberately distorted idea of what um, human freedom really is. I mean, it's um, there's an old phrase. Um, if you want to understand what uh, oppression is, try sleeping in a doorway in the land of the free. Um, and you see scenes now with, particularly with how the the U.S. and Britain is responding to the coronavirus, where um, the 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 U.S. government in particular treats the homeless population as less less well than they do animals um There's gigantic queues for food uh, around the block, where because people can't afford to eat, and uh, all the things they said were uh, true about socialist states uh, in the propaganda, it turns out are true about capitalist states. So it's, I think we're living in uh, the the looking glass has been reversed at the moment. Dermot, wouldn't you say?
1: Yes, uh, very very much so. I mean, the whole uh, way uh, COVID-19 has been handled. Uh, by the uh, capitalist uh, countries, has has been disastrous. It's been chaotic and incompetent. Mm. Uh, the DPRK itself uh, managed to uh, avoid uh, having a cases of uh, COVID nineteen in the country by taking a number of very stringent measures at an early stage.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: and uh, recent videos I've I've seen of the DPRK have shown the shops are are well stocked whereas you know here it can be at times difficult to buy some items of food uh and as you say you know the situation of the homeless is just uh, it's just unbelievably appalling and you know we're facing economic uh disaster you know, there's going to be huge job losses. Many businesses are going to go bankrupt. And they're talking about the biggest uh, recession for a very long time.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: so, yeah, I mean, it is, is a case of, uh, you know, it is the, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's the reverse mirror, base, basically. The image uh, they've uh, promoted of socialism is actually uh, true uh, of uh the uh, reality of capitalist societies
0: yeah i mean you could if they ran a story saying uh uh, kim jong-un orders uh uh, koreans uh back to work despite uh deadly disease outbreak people would shake their heads and marvel at the uh, supposed barbarity of the communists but that is exactly what trump is ordering for the u.s working class it's go back to work and essentially die for the economy. <laughs> that, that, that's right. That, that's very true. And I think in Britain,
1: there's a lot of pressure from some quarters to, you know, end the lockdown, people go back to work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which leads me to the final uh, final point in our discussion today, which is we were talking about conceptions of freedom, conceptions of, um, you know, political liberty, etc. And, you have a um, a more personal story about this, Dumber, because um, in you as somebody who's actually been impacted directly by, well, essentially British state-led um, persecution for political beliefs. So I wondered if you could just talk a little about a little bit about what happened to you as a direct re- result of your activities with KFA and some of the other solidarity work you've done with the DPRK.
1: Right. Well. Um... I became KFA uh, delegate, uh, official delegate in 2001, and I'd been involved uh, in uh, career Solidarity since the 1980s. And I uh, had uh, got a job at the Valuation Office uh, in 1989, uh, which is an executive agency of uh, HM Revenue and Customs. Uh, and so I'd always kept the two roles separate, Uh, you know, never um, uh, used the workplace or any resources at the workplace for my uh, political, my activities in support of the DPRK. Uh, However, in uh, 2014, uh, uh, a Sunday Times investigative journalist was on my case. Uh, and uh, you know, I kept getting a lot of uh, calls from this uh, journalist. Uh, uh, ba- basically, uh, a load of journalists uh, turned up at my flat uh, when when I was out and tried to get in, uh, upset members of my family in doing so. You know, members of my family felt frightened by them. And the the upshot of it was the Sunday Times uh, ran a half page article on me. Um, some of it was all the usual sort of rubbish, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm used to. But uh, they published uh, my my employer's name, hmm. and of course that was picked up on because they they have their own media media monitoring service yeah and uh they sort of picked up that the agency had been mentioned so they they looked at the article and uh i you know came into work about two days uh after the article and uh on arriving uh in the office i was called in by the group manager and another manager uh Asked all sorts of questions, uh, and then uh, later I was, you know, I had a free hour interrogation by a member of HR, <laughs> uh, and asked all kinds of questions like how many times i uh, really visited the DPRK, how many times have I gone to the DPRK embassy and you know i was charged with serious misconduct you he know, said i I'd, I'd broken uh different uh rules uh that you know, i was engaged in political activity without permission uh, uh this kind of thing that even if i had applied for uh permission to engage in, in activities in support of the dprk they would have denied it anyway yeah. that I'd broken rules on media contact well you know i i hadn't spoken to the journalist that was a fact but you know according to them i'd, I'd broken uh, rules As say i was uh you know i i appealed against the uh the ruling uh but, you know i couldn't get anywhere in the uh, say the charge was serious misconduct so i was put on i think five year can't remember five-year warning but mm. I was told uh that i had to resign as kfa official delegate and kfa chairman i
2: mm.
1: sign or you know basically face the uh sack uh And as I say, I was actually in the PCS union. I was actually a rep at different levels, you know, within the office. uh, Yes. And even even a national uh, rep. Uh, So, you know, supposedly I got help from PCS uh, from, uh, uh, firstly from an SWP member who was an NEC member Mm. and I, uh, full-timer who was a member of the socialist party and he, he was quite unhelpful he said oh you should just resign mm.
2: uh, as
1: as uh you know as kfa official delegate you mm. know he didn't want, want to fight it at all uh i took my case to the uh civil service appeal board you know got nowhere that there, there, uh there uh so they basically uh, decided to cut my losses and run. I was able to sort of take early retirement. I had 25 years of service. Hmm. Uh, so I was able to sort of get, get out with a, a lump sum uh, and a, a pension, uh, which in one way you could say was good because, you know, I knew they were going to sack me. Hmm.
2: Uh
1: and i and uh, the other way you know it was a big, big loss of uh, income,
0: yeah
1: yeah uh, and, you know, as you say uh it just show you know showed you what what rubbish uh, is that the idea you've got freedom of speech and association in this country because you haven't really, and when I hear about people talking about DPRK human rights, why. Well, I wonder you know where where was my human rights in in that situation uh you know it's a very uh it was a very bad situation and at the moment we we have k f a members who are frightened to get involved because you know they fear you know the same thing will happen to them at their workplaces yeah so it's a way of intimidating uh Uh, the KFA and you know
0: trying to shut down activity in support of the DPRK well this is the um, this is the thing isn't it that the freedom in uh, so called democratic capitalist societies is the freedom to participate in the incredibly limited uh, theatrics of bourgeois politics Um, if you step outside of that uh, even in the smallest way especially if you step outside of that in in support of or in solidarity with an officially designated enemy of of the state. Um, They will deprive you of your means of an income. They'll deprive you of the means to make a living. If you challenge them too far on, or if you challenge the employers too far, if you step outside of the tacit or sometimes written agreements between the uh, the official trade unions and the and the employers and the government, you're denied the means of uh, making a living. I'm thinking, of course, of the, um, the all the blacklisted building workers and electricians in this country that um, was exposed a decade ago, uh, that the employers and the government and corrupt union officials were blacklisting men who actually stood up for trade union rights on building sites. Where was their freedom of assembly and expression there um it seems that the you are permitted up to a certain point to do things but only up to the point that the the ruling class decides is acceptable for them and you dermot and many of the rest of us by stepping outside of that you become um you become there is a blacklist that runs in this country uh, there is a secret police that runs in this country uh, that's as as tight in its operations as many of its uh, as many of its more openly totalitarian um, so called enemies, um, and I think this is one of the reasons why I run this channel um, is to give the counter narratives on countries like the DPRK and reflect it back into um, what uh, what our own conceptions are of uh, so called freedom and democracy. Um, so Derma I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's been an illuminating discussion and I hope that the the audience gets uh, gets as much out of it as I have in terms of seeing the broader picture and longer historical trends with regard to um the DPRK and uh, the the kind of socialism that has been built there. If people uh, want to find out more about the uh, your work Dermot, and the KFA's work uh, where can they go to? Well, uh KFA
1: does a lot of work on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you can find UK KFA on uh, Facebook quite uh, quite easily. We we have a page with uh, about uh, six thousand uh, likes. Uh, we run uh, two two websites. Uh, again, you can easily Google uh, UK KFA, and there's the central. Uh, kfa website uh, www.korea-dpr.com mm-hmm. uh, and when the lockdown is is finally over we you know we hope to uh be resuming uh meetings because at the moment we've suspect uh you know suspended all meetings because people's safety as has, has to come first and yes. we also have a uh, KFA uh, Twitter account as well as well as my own per- personal Twitter account so I mean we we're e- easy to def- uh, find on the internet
0: uh, excellent so be sure to check that out and uh, it just remains for me to say uh, thanks to Dermot for coming on today and um hopefully I'll be able to have you back on again at some point Emma.
1: Thank you very much for interviewing me and I think it's been a very uh, good
0: useful and constructive interview. Uh ah, thank you very much and um for those of you who are interested in finding out more, be sure to check out uh, Dermot's work on the in the KFA and the KFA's broader work of international solidarity with the DPRK. So it just remains for me to say to all listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in and uh, solidarity to all of you out there.